cuckoo kachoo motherfuckers do you think garfunkel was ever like man what the fuck is this song even about paul i don't think garfunkel thought garfunkel probably just thought to himself i'm getting paid motherfucker thanks for your hard work dude because I don't know if anybody knows this. Let's get this clear the air right away. Simon and Garfunkel really is just Paul Simon who did everything. According to Paul Simon. Art Garfunkel was his glorified backup singer who got his name put on everything. But in reality, it was just Paul Simon singing and I mean, writing every single song. I could tell you watched a Paul Simon interview. I watched uh, three. I mean, really the gist of this band is that they shouldn't exist. It's two very dysfunctional people that the music is almost like kind of like the second part of this whole thing. The front side is these two people are extremely dysfunctional and they are in a arguably abusive relationship with each other. And the first time they broke up, they probably should have stayed broken up. But just like emotionally damaged people decided to get back together however many fucking times and keep the whole thing going. It's kind of the first version of Rumors era Fleetwood Mac in that everyone was paying attention to this thing like, holy shit, these guys hate each other. Which one of them's going to punch the other one on stage first? I almost wish social media existed back in the day. Paul Simon would be like subtweeting Garfunkel. I think he would be adding him and Art would be like, <laughs> right. what the fuck, dude? <laughs> Paul Simon would just be taking shots all the time. <laughs> At Art Garfunkel on social media because that's what very mature people do today in modern society. But back then, Paul had to wait for the interviews to come up to take subtle or not so subtle shots at Garfunkel and be like, I write everything. I do it all. Yeah, he uh, cannot tell you that enough. It's You get secondhand embarrassment really bad watching basically any Paul Simon interview. He... Love to tell you how he writes songs so he can point out the things that he did differently than what other people are doing and really plays into the mythology that he's some kind of genius instead oh. of a hack ripoff artist, which is kind of his whole career. I don't know if there's anything we're going to be able to say that would roast these guys harder than pointing out that they performed as Tom and Jerry for years prior to their career as Simon and Garfunkel. Tom and Jerry like the cartoon Cat and Mouse. Which was a very popular cartoon for all of our younger audience who were like, A, who the fuck are Simon and Garfunkel? <laughs> and B, what the fuck is Tom and Jerry? It was a very popular cartoon at the time. So it would be like the equivalent of uh, naming your band Pokemon. Rick and Morty. It yeah, would be yeah, like yeah, if, they, if they were playing as Rick and Morty. Perfect. Yes. Our band uh -huh. is uh, Rick and Morty for singer-songwriters. How the fuck did they not get sued for doing that, by the way? Because if you came out and did an album as Rick and Morty right now, I got to think you would have 55 lawyers in your asshole by the end of the day. Oh, God, yeah. Well, I actually, I know how it never became a problem because they, they, they broke no, up. No, because no one ever paid attention to it. True. No one gave a fuck. So apparently they started singing together because they wanted to be the Everly Brothers. And even if you love Simon and Garfunkel, you have got to admit that's one of the most ridiculous things you've ever heard. Not only did Simon and Garfunkel entirely fail in their goal of being the Everly Brothers, if you handed any Simon and Garfunkel song to the Everly Brothers, what they would do with the song would make you never want to listen to Simon and Garfunkel again. Conversely, you can listen to Simon and Garfunkel doing an Everly Brothers song because they put Bye Bye Love on their Bridge Over Troubled Water album. Q 
Cue that up against the original and try to gaslight yourself into thinking it's even good, let alone something close to the original. I didn't even realize that they said that. That kind of, that blows my mind. Again, I embarrassing. Watched, I know. I watched so many documentaries for this episode. I prepared myself. Normally I would just read, but this time I spent time watching, which I will say real quick before we move on. Although this is a going to be a very fun and long episode and a good time and entertaining. Long, all at you, least. All you would really have to do, you don't even have to listen to this episode. Just go watch all of the documentaries. The true story of Simon and Garfunkel. And if somehow, after watching two or three of those, you still like Simon and Garfunkel, you are brainwashed because all I had to do was watch that and go, wow, does any, did anybody else watch this? If you do that and then go listen to the albums that they made, it's just going to blow your mind. You're going to be like, wait, why did anyone care in the first place? Because this is back when the music was supposed to matter first before anyone started coming around and asking you questions and printing your answers. You had to do music that people cared about first. And if you watch those documentaries, I bet they play clips of max five songs. That's being generous. I think it's probably closer to the same three songs over and over again. Probably going to hear Mrs. Robinson about eight times in any Simon and Garfunkel documentary. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know that song because your grandma liked it or whatever. But if you go try to listen to this discography, it is not going to go well. The first Simon and Garfunkel album is basically a parody of a folk duo it's almost you know that tv show documentary now on netflix <laughs> no. the first time in a garfunkel album seems like fred armison doing a parody of a folk duo well wait have you seen mighty wind yeah i watched half of a mighty wind also in preparation for this and i was like oh, this is literally directly making fun of Simon and Garfunkel. The first album starts with a half-assed gospel song. The second song has a banjo on it. And nearly all of the songs make the Kingston Trio sound like the Dead Kennedys. You can try to listen to the whole thing if you feel like punishing yourself, but all you really got to do is listen to their cover of Bob Dylan's The Times They Are A-Changin'. It sounds like two guys who'd be doing free shows for children at your local library just to get someone to listen to them. What is it with folkies? I guess it's what I don't, is that really is that what we're going to call this? I guess the genre ish folk singer It's post Kingston trio pop folk is okay. what you would call it. So what is the obsession with this genre of covering Bob Dylan? Because that's how they found out about folk music. Is okay, Bob Dylan. I guess they were like a. Well, I got to pay homage to Bob. It is probably worth mentioning here. Simon and Garfunkel went down to the same Greenwich Village scene that birthed Dylan and tried to pitch this bullshit act of theirs. The old heads hated it. Dave Van Ronk is on record that all of the folk singers who'd been in the village for a decade at that point thought these guys were a joke. And they were a joke. Look at them. These dudes are the human equivalent of black turtleneck sweaters. It's so funny. I joked to myself earlier because nobody was home at the time. <laughs> what's, what's your life like, man? Yeah, I was having an internal conversation with myself today <laughs> going, I wish we were recording this in winter because all I wanted to wear for this episode was a turtleneck and a scarf. That's what I want to be wearing right now, but it is 91 degrees outside. So I chose to go with this twisted t-shirt <clears throat> and twisted is also another duo arguably considerably better than anything that Simon and Garfunkel ever did. Anyways, oddly enough, I think I look at Steve Jobs and go, oh, he was a Garfunkel fan. Definitely. The outfit you described, I can practically guarantee you that Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel wore that 
at some live performance of poetry where you snap your fingers instead of clapping for applause. That's what these guys were doing. Well, did you see what they wore to the New York City live? Woo! I didn't watch a single thing for this episode. Wow, fucking dorks. You said Simon and Garfunkel, and I sat down and just wrote down everything that is in my notes right now. <laughs> Which I'm looking at is considerable. <laughs> they look like dorks. That's all I'm going to say. Even in front of 500,000 people or something like that. Which, by the way, come on. A, it's New York City. You would almost just go just because. It was a free show. It's a free show. All the opportunities to rob people there. Come on. (laughs) It's free and it's a beautiful night. We should go. And then, please, someone that's probably 60 at this point, email us and let us know. Email is an electronic communication form. Send us a pigeon. I would love to know. (laughs) There's got to have been people in the crowd that got there that had never heard of it before. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Well, especially because live, it's just them dicking around with Paul Simon playing on acoustic guitar and then them singing. Whatever you're used to hearing on the album is not what you're going to hear. It's quite literally Art Garfunkel standing there awkwardly singing to Paul Simon, who's playing guitar. Get the fuck off this. <laughs> this is the worst opening band I've ever seen. No, that's, that's who everyone's here for. Are you fucking with me right now? How many hours can you sing Kumbaya? Anyway, first time in a Garfunkel album sucked, so nobody bought it. And these guys already hated each other, so they broke up. And the label essentially gave them a hit record against their will after they broke up. People who do not already know this story are going to think I'm making it up. I'm not. You can look it up. The song Sounds of Silence was originally released on that first album as more of a folk song and it doesn't have any of the dynamics and it never goes anywhere. About a year or two after the album came out, the record label got word some college radio stations were playing this one song a lot. They decided to release it as a single, but the label also didn't think that folk version of the song would be a hit because Bob Dylan had recently gone electric and made everyone still making folk music look like a dork. So Tom Wilson, the producer on Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, the very same day, right after the Like a Rolling Stone session, without asking or informing Paul Simon or Art Garfunkel, had some of the same studio musicians stay after to record backing tracks for a new version of Sounds of Silence. That is what the label released as a single in 1965, and it became Simon and Garfunkel's first hit. Mm. Now, I have a question. Has anyone ever looked at the lyrics I feel like this song is way creepier than everyone has acted like it is. One of the lyrics is, A vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted on my brain still remains. I'm sorry, a ghost came on your brains, dude, and you left it there. (laughs) A ghost nutted in my brain, and I didn't clean it up. It just sounds like serial killer music. He to me. also rhymes the word vision with the word vision, which is an automatic disqualification. But I think it's more important to ask, is this where Jeff Mankum got the idea to write so many lyrics about semen for Neutral Milk Hotel? No doubt. hundred percent. He grew up listening to this, turned into a psychopath because that's what everyone he listens, definitely does. grew up listening to Guarantee this. you. We don't have time to do this as a side bit, but we could sit here and list artists who for fucking sure sat around listening to Paul Simon with their parents when they were a kid. And that's why they're fucked up. They don't know it, but that's why they're fucked up. (laughs) Y'all can do your own math on that one, but it's pretty obvious in most cases. What's the Venn diagram? 
Paul Simon made me a creep.com. <laughs> Before anyone gets mad at me, like I'm the one who made Sound of Silence dirty, you can find a kid on YouTube doing a hand fart cover of the entire song. So if you're not doing anything after this episode, maybe go check that out. That guy fucks. Uh, speaking of hand fart covers of a song, I love that disturbed covered Sounds of Silence. I believe I learned of the existence of that cover. Because <laughs> of me? I think you told me while we were recording an episode. I don't remember what episode it was or if it got left in the finished version. Maybe oh, someone does remember this happening. I distinctly remember you talking about Disturbed doing a cover of Sound of Silence. And I thought that you were making a joke. And then I realized that you weren't making a joke. And I was like, what? Yeah. This is the one thing I watched. I did go and watch it. You watched the music video? I watched the music video and oh, I watched them doing shit. it live on a late oh, night talk show. Shit, you went hard. So... The reason why I watched two was because in the in the recorded version, the studio version of Disturbed cover of the song, everyone always makes a huge deal out of doorbell knocker chin guy being an operatically trained singer, right? Everyone always talks about that. And he's like, such a fucking mind-blowing singer, Whoa! bro. And okay, I'm, yeah. I'm listening to that cover of Sound of Silence, and it is saturated in auto-tune. Wait, he's using auto-tune. Well, can, so can he even do this live? So then I went and found a live version and they're just using auto-tune on the live version too. That's the thing about that cover. A, why the fuck would you pick that song to cover? <laughs> B, you're crying in the music video, you fucking pussy. What the <laughs> fuck? How do you even look at any of your fans ever again in the face? How do you do that live? I don't know. And C, you don't even do it well. That's the thing is, it would be one thing if you took a shitty, already shitty song and you made it better, which a lot of covers do. There's lots of cover songs that I prefer over the original because they make it better. He's dressed like he's going to be an extra oh. in a Blade sequel the whole time that he's yeah. singing it. Too. Beginning to end. Dude, do you have a sword? Are you carrying a sword right now and crying and singing a Paul Simon song? Our Disturbed Sucks episode would literally just be all we did was be like this moment in this band's history makes them suck forever like there's nothing there's no redeeming yourself from that it's so bad door knocker chin guy is pretty funny too that's what it looks like it does no i agree so we have new t-shirts but i just realized can we say how how specifically can we describe the designs of our new shirts uh we have shirts that roundaboutly might kind of make you think of a certain 90s runs rock band uh and or another famous rock band from the across the pond it rhymes with <laughs> the bowling bones the bowling bones yeah shmirvana <laughs> shmirvana Come on down to yfbspod.com merch store buy a t-shirt buy a flag buy a pin Buy a sticker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anyway, after the uh, genetically modified Simon and Garfunkel single became their first hit, they rush recorded a second album. And if you can't already tell, it's awful from the fact they made it solely to capitalize on a hit they weren't actually responsible for. The songs are all bad. The lyrics are bad. The melodies are bad. Anything you think is interesting about the production of any particular song is literally them just ripping off someone else. 
Like how Somewhere They Can't Find Me sounds like the worst song the band Love ever did. There's no reason to listen to the song A Most Peculiar Man or anything else on this album in a universe where the kinks already exist. In a lot of ways, the rest of Simon and Garfunkel's career from here seems intent upon answering the question, what if the kinks were not cool, not funny, not interesting, not dangerous in any way at all? If you just took the kinks, everything that makes them great and just sucked it all out. This is the music I'm going to make. I think very specifically, that is what Paul Simon decided to do. And he did spend some time over in England. People don't know this now, it seems like, but the Kinks were not popular in the United States because they were too much of a shit show and got banned on their first half tour. They didn't ever really break over here. And it was like after the fact that people over here found out about them. If the Kinks were as huge here as they were overseas, I don't think there's any way that Simon and Garfunkel have a career. And I don't think that Paul Simon goes on to then have a solo career on the back of it. Which I guess people that love Simon and Garfunkel are probably saying, what are you talking about? You're fucking delusional, dude. It's not my problem. You're delusional. Yeah. The thing is, is like, just because you take another genre of music and you play it on acoustic guitar really slowly and sing poorly harmonically over the top of it, doesn't mean you didn't just jack the shit out of it. Just take something that is already successful for someone else and perform it for an audience that has a fucking ocean in between them. After the second album, you get to Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. A song about fucking seasoning for your chicken. (laughs) What the fuck, dude? It's some Renaissance Fair bullshit. Good God. This whole album is everything that's wrong with the second album, but it's worse because this is where all of the critics, for some reason, decide to start taking Simon and Garfunkel seriously. This is the moment. This is what triggers people into going, we should pay attention to this. This is actually really good. I don't know about you, but I think this is something that something's happening here. The song Homeward Bound is no less trite or embarrassing than everything on their second album, but you'd be hard-pressed to find any article about Paul Simon from the last decade that doesn't list that song when discussing all of the classics that he wrote. I think it sounds like it could have been used as the theme song to that Homeward Bound live-action talking animals who get separated from their family and have to find their way home from the woods movie. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm a child of my age. Uh, Paul Simon himself hates the 59th Street Bridge song. This is the one that everyone calls Feeling Groovy, which, like most of these songs, sounds like the jingle from a 1950s commercial for Folgers Coffee. Yeah, dude, we've all heard Donovan, too. Stop pretending like you came up with this bit. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. This music does make me want to A, roast a chicken, and B, drink espresso. If it sounds like we're plowing through this shit as fast as we can, because that's exactly what we're doing. I barely, I don't think I'm even halfway through my notes right now. (laughs) Uh, The movie The Graduate is what comes next. Oh, wait, is this the one that uh, they both were told that they were going to be in? And then, oh, that's later. That's the next uh, Mike Nichols movie, Catch 22. (laughs) We have talked a lot before on this podcast about how movie marketing budgets are bigger than music marketing budgets. Anytime a big movie features some band or some song, then that music is going to blow up when the movie blows up. These dudes did not even write a whole song for the Mrs. Robinson thing. Paul just wrote that chorus and the director loved it, basically became the theme song of the movie and he used that chorus all over the movie. 
happens to become the actual highest grossing movie of the year 1967. And it was only at that point that Paul Simon wrote the rest of the song. I don't need to hear from anybody how Mrs. Robinson is an example of genius songwriting when it was a hit before it was even written. Uh, having your song in a very popular movie, regardless of whether it being good or bad, it sticks in people's brains. This is such a powerful form of marketing, but that's really all it is. The song didn't even exist. They were going, man, who wrote this? This song is great. Oh my gosh, I love this. What is this? Paul's sitting in the studio like, oh shit, I gotta finish writing this shit. What the? God damn it. What do I say? Somebody tell me what to say. Everyone who loves this song would have loved it if the verses were all about Mrs. Robinson taking a shit on the guy's chest and pissing in his mouth afterward. It wouldn't have fucking mattered what he wrote in the verses. You'd just be like, piss on me, Mrs. Robinson. I love it. Jesus isn't looking, let it go. Flow, flow, flow. I'm on my knees, Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. I wish he'd write a song about someone taking a shit on his face. Something half as dirty as that. Then maybe I could take Simon and Garfunkel seriously because there is not an ounce of danger in this music at any point in the discography. Even when they reference nuclear war, murder, sex, it just seems like neither one of them could have less of a clue what they're talking about. They could be singing about anything because no matter what the lyrics are, they're just going to be concerned with trying to make it sound pretty without any deviation from what they do on every other song without any attempt to convey an actual emotion. If you were to look at somebody that loves this music the wrong way, they would just start crying. You know what I mean? Like you just expect them to be like, sorry, I'm just, you looked at me, you looked at me kind of mean and it, it, it threw me for a loop. It's really fitting that the song The Only Living Boy in New York is on the Garden State soundtrack because I think this band sounds like the experience I imagine someone who didn't need antidepressants would have if they took antidepressants. Everything's underwater. If you're watching some movie that's set in the Middle Ages and they have some dickhead in the corner playing a lute or something, he didn't write a real song and... They're not trying to get you to like pay attention to his music. So they just have him back there doing something that's, you know, light and inoffensive or whatever. Simon and Garfunkel would be like if everyone was on set making this movie and someone decided it was the best shit they ever heard and then made everyone pay attention to it. And it somehow just blew up into some huge thing that it was never supposed to be. These guys are supposed to be in a corner somewhere playing some shit that is easily ignored by everyone. But for some reason, we're supposed to take it seriously and act like they're geniuses. It really should have never left any coffee shops. They should still be playing coffee shops across America. It should just be background noise, which I guess that's kind of what it turned into at this point. It's great if you're looking for music to play at a family reunion where your grandma, who's 92 years old, is there. Your grandma comes over to your first apartment and she's, yes. she's about to throw an album on. as so She's walking towards your stacks and you're like, no because she's going to grab any record except for the one fucking Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel album you keep around for this exact scenario. Because mm -hmm. if she throws on anything else, you're getting sent to military school or some shit. She's cutting you off. My favorite piece of Simon and Garfunkel trivia is that apparently, before anyone knew who the band The Doors were, The Doors were booked to open for Simon and Garfunkel at some stadium in Queens. I don't remember the name of the stadium. A stadium. Jesus. 
these dudes are from Queens. So this is, you know, a hometown hero show for Simon and Garfunkel. They make the music that they make, as we've been discussing at length. And Jim Morrison gets up there in front of a bunch of people who want to hear Simon and Garfunkel make the music that Simon and Garfunkel make. Uh, on purpose. Jim Morrison gets up there and starts singing about how much he wants to fuck his mom and make everyone lick a snake or whatever the fuck else. Fuck yeah. Ray Manzarek famously always says that this was the worst Doors show that they ever performed. But I don't know. It sounds pretty fucking great to me, Ray. Sounds hard as fuck. Fuck those people, man. They listen yeah. to Simon and Garfunkel, dude. Dude, imagine showing up to your... your <laughs> imagine like being a rock and roll band like Doors. Drinking and doing drugs and fucking eating acid before your show. Band meeting backstage. Guys, we're riding this one off the cliff. Uh, Guys, they're not even drinking beer right now. This dude asked if the concession stand had hot water for his tea bag that he brought. Exactly. It's Earl Grey. These people have never right. needed anything more than for us to go out there and do the full peyote show. Exactly. It's 85 and they're all wearing turtlenecks, guys. We're going hard tonight. Uh, then, I mean, I'm just going through the albums because really that's all you got to do. I don't need to sit here and roast this band for personal reasons, although I could. I don't need to roast their fucking friendship. I'm going to do it later, but I don't need to. I could just sit down and talk about this music all day because it's a joke. It's laughable. The album Bookends is regarded as this genius turning point in the career of Simon and Garfunkel. This is some masterpiece, right? It just so happens that this masterpiece was released at basically the same time as the Graduate soundtrack. Remember that one? The huge soundtrack from the biggest movie of the year. And then, oh, they just happened to release this album that just happens to be the one that's on all the greatest album lists. Are you fucking kidding me? I will admit that when the song Save the Life of My Child starts off with that synthesizer, of course, you're sitting there thinking, mm, okay, maybe we're about to get into some maybe Kevin Ayers kick-ass synth territory or something. But no, as soon as Paul Simon starts singing, it becomes a Pete Townsend B-side on the verses and then another half-ass Paul Simon chorus. And there are a lot of half-ass Paul Simon choruses. Most of them are half-ass choruses. I think maybe Paul would have done better if he actually had a co-writer. Lie, lie, lie is the fucking chorus of an entire song. The slang in the song America is so dorky. He talks about having pot on him by saying he's got some real estate in his bag. Woo, you hardcore edgy motherfucker, you. I know that some people don't believe that line is referencing pot, but the characters in this song are obviously higher than God the entire time or else what is this shit even about? Why is he talking about this guy secretly being a spy and having a camera in his bow tie? Or what's the part where one of them can't remember that they smoked their last cigarette an hour ago? If these two are not paranoid and forgetful because they're stoned, they're the dumbest motherfuckers that have ever been the protagonist of a song. These dudes like strike me as like uh, Mark Zuckerberg trying to talk about drugs. Well, I can't tell everyone that I smoke weed, but I got real estate in my pocket, if you know what I'm saying. Fucking dork. Just say that you're smoking weed. He sees the confused looks on everybody's faces, and then that Terminator text comes up in his eye implant and it's just like no humans do not talk that way i guess when you're making pg or g music you have to like you know keep everything innuendos dude i think paul simon used to smoke hash and then would give interviews like he had a real problem with hash <laughs> really that would not surprise me well the thing about like their image 
uh, probably most folk-ish music is that it's very clean cut. If you look at Kingston Trio and you even look at Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel, it's very clean cut. There's nothing edgy about it. This is shit that like, even at the time your grandmother was just, listening just to. Just to be clear for the young children who don't have any context for what you're talking about. Again, Mark referenced Kingston Trio there because he's specifically talking about pop folk, which Simon and Garfunkel also. Folk musicians will stab you. True folk? Yes. They're like, fucking carnies, man. Right. Like they're yeah. like literally carnies. Travel from town to town. Where are your drugs? Where are your daughters? Don't fuck with me because I'm leaving town tomorrow and I'm never going to see any of you people again. That's a folk musician. That sounds hard as fuck and sounds awesome. Also, if you think smoking weed makes you cool, it just came out that more people smoke pot than tobacco as of right now in the United States. So you literally do what most people do. You're just part of the crowd now, man. Oh, and if anyone's planning on coming at me with some bullshit about how this dork slang is just the way people talked back then, it's not. It's the way dorks talked back then. And if you want to find out how the cool kids were talking, go get and read a novel named Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up To Me by a guy named Richard Farinha. F-A-R-I-N with a little Spanish tilde on it. A. Now that we've sold a bunch of shirts, maybe people will start responding to them wearing our shirt. We get tagged in posts all the time, I see. Yeah, if you get a shirt. At yfbspod.com. I want to hear the stories. Oh, I definitely want to hear some stories. I bet it's a lot of people laughing at the shirt. I bet when you're walking around in a shirt that says your favorite band sucks on it, you get a lot of people who aren't dumb as fuck going, that shirt's funny. I hope. It's a great conversation starter. Or ender. If you're a single person and you're someone that goes on dates, you should buy a shirt and wear it on a date. Mm-hmm. It's a great litmus test. Figure out right away. Oh, this person I'm going on this date with, his favorite band is Weezer. Text your friend. Hey, uh, can you call me in a minute and tell me that you really need my help? Get the fuck out of there. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. The lyrics and vocals on the song Punky's Dilemma are a pretty great example of what's wrong with Simon and Garfunkel. First of all, the first 50% of the song is about what this dude likes to eat for breakfast. (laughs) wish I was an English muffin about to make the most out of a toaster. I'd ease myself down coming up brown. I prefer boysenberry more than an ordinary jam. Occasionally slipping into a fake British accent whilst singing this bullshit. I just want to know who heard that for the first time. They're like, oh yeah, man, I can relate. This is like a dad joke decided to not be a joke anymore and wanted people to take him seriously and decided to be a band. Speaking of fake British accents, that main guitar riff, not the strumming, but the riff on Mrs. Robinson is hacked straight off the beginning of the riff from the kinks. Nothing in this world can stop me worrying about the girl. And don't even get me fucking started on Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel being a kinks ripoff. If the kinks were given a real chance in the States, nobody in this century would even know who Paul Simon is. You played that song for me. It was almost exact note for note. It was very obvious. It's the first half of the riff. So many of Paul Simon's supposedly poetic lyrics are unbelievably banal. In the song, If I Could, he sings about how he'd rather be a sparrow than a snail. 
He'd rather be a forest than a street. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, have y'all ever read a Shel Silverstein book or listened to his records? Because if you want to talk about whimsical writing, his stuff blows this away. It's not close. Never was. What's funny now that you say that too, everyone needs to watch A Mighty Wind. If you haven't watched it, it's a fantastic movie. I think the level of satire is so deep even when they're writing satirical lyrics. It just stops being satire. Yes, exactly. It's like, like, okay, this is a documentary. They're, right, they're writing ridiculous, completely goofy lyrics. Oh God, that's so goofy. And then you go listen to Simon and Garfunkel and you go, oh, wait, that was real. It's almost impossible to write a satire around these guys because they wrote such ridiculous lyrics. But we're dead serious about it saying that was some sort of deep meaning to it that you were supposed to go "Mm, yeah man I agree he probably sings about flowers in every single song wow that just hits me so hard (laughs) I do wonder and maybe maybe this interview exists but I didn't find it do you ever wonder because Paul wrote everything we can't forget do you think Art ever read the lyrics that he was about to sing and go what the fuck dude you want me to sing this did you think he ever pushed back or was he just afraid of getting fired i think art carfuck was just happy to be there man i mean <laughs> i don't think he had a lot going art on i was like okay you want me to sing this and uh, how much is my paycheck this week okay yeah i'll sing all this bullshit paul sounds fucking great did art garfunkel ever actually do anything that people care about no i'm obviously aware he's a much better singer than paul simon because who's not i'm acutely aware of that he exists Paul's solo career proves that people obviously don't care about who was the better singer of the two. Maybe if Paul didn't take credit for the entire band in every single interview he did for 30, 40 years at this point, maybe people would care about Art Garfunkel, but nobody gives a flying fuck about the backup singer known as Art Garfunkel. I would also argue that Art Garfunkel's acting career is certainly not worth talking about. Okay, well, there was the movie that they both... You know, they were both told they were going to be in. And then it turned out that only Art was in the movie, which really upset little Paul's feelings. Paul talks about that like that was the beginning of the end for them. The beginning was the beginning of the end for them. They they broke up before anyone even fucking heard of them. All of this shit. You know, they they say, uh, what is it? An oak tree. There's an oak tree in every acorn. This fucking acorn had this oak tree in it from the jump, y'all. I read something that was about how messed up it is. Imagine being told that you're both going to be in a movie and then it turns out that only art's in the movie and how that would blah, blah, blah. And I was like, who gives a shit? Exactly. Well, it matters to Paul because his ego is so fucking huge that he was probably like, you chose him. I write all the music. And the movie director was like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is a movie, dude. I'm not asking you to write me a song. But I wrote all the music for Simon and Garfunkel and Garfunkel's in the movie. Can you imagine being threatened by Art Garfunkel? If he threatened you as a man, he fucked with your sense of security. Look at this guy. Look at him and then look at his fucking resume. Art Garfunkel's favorite album of all time is Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. He is basically everyone's boring ass, the healing power of Crystal's auntie. How are you going to have a vendetta, a blood feud against that guy? His one moment to shine without Paul. Just let him have it, bro. No, honestly, literally just let him have this one. You know that Paul Simon probably spent three months talking to everyone about how he couldn't believe that art 
Art is in the movie and he didn't even tell me he was in the movie all the while. Paul never let him take credit for a single thing that ever happened in the fucking duo ever. Dude, there are at least two therapists who have houses in the Hamptons because of this band. Mm. Art Garfunkel managed to live through the 60s and never even get arrested on marijuana charges until the mid 2000s. That's the lamest thing I've ever heard of. It's just sad. But he was in the movies and Paul wasn't. Ha <laughs> ha. Paul Simon managed to get himself inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice because of Simon and Garfunkel and as a solo artist. And I've got to think that he probably was like behind the campaign to also get inducted as a solo artist. But since he did that, I think it's fair that we come back later at some point and do a whole other episode on just him and how much of an asshole he is. Because if we did that in this episode, it would be three hours long. There is one thing specifically about Paul Simon that is worth pointing out in this episode. For my other job, I have to research all kinds of things about country music. And while I was researching the Nashville A-Team, this is a group of musicians who worked with basically every major artist that recorded in Nashville for three decades. Shout out Cocaine and Rhinestones. These musicians were always getting asked what it was like to get to play with all these awesome artists who came to town. And the Nashville A-Team would always say some version of, oh, you know, it was really great, except Paul Simon. <laughs> and <laughs> for real, and I'm talking like over decades of interviews consistently, except Paul Simon. Look into it. And turns out there are a lot of less popular, less platformed, not as much of a voice to speak this shit out. Musicians who allege that Paul Simon is a song thief. The A-team players say Paul Simon came to Nashville with no ideas, told them to jam in the live room while he listened from the control room where he must have been recording them or something because then he leaves town. His next album comes out and there's the stuff the A-team guys came up with and they're not credited. These are dudes who absolutely know when they do and don't deserve to be credited as writers on something. They add iconic riffs to songs and never even think about asking for a credit for coming up with some of the most notable and memorable guitar riffs of all time that you've definitely heard. They've never even occurred to them to ask for credit. If they say they deserve credit, I believe that they deserve credit. The Swampers and Muscle Shoals, another group of musicians who know when they do and don't deserve credit, say they should have been credited for what they came up with on Paul's first solo album. And that's also what Los Lobos claims happened to them on the Graceland album. You know, this guy's like biggest album. These guys are a big deal, by the way. If you don't listen to good music, Los Lobos matter a lot. And for anyone to rip them off is deeply, deeply offensive to a lot of people who care about good music. This is all just Paul Simon solo stuff, but if he's doing this from his first solo album on, if you believe all these people, you gotta wonder when he began doing it and how much credit he may or may not really deserve as a songwriter. Yeah, it would be hard to believe that it only happened later in his career. How many places did he go? How many coffee shops did he visit? How many other artists did he go hang out with? It never turned into anything. The thing is, he grows up in New York City. Also had experience overseas where a lot of the people on stateside didn't have. He definitely tried to steal the Simon and Garfunkel song Cloudy from a guy named Bruce Woodley. But BMI added Woodley to the song, even though Simon tried to stop them from doing it. No, I wrote that. They were like, nope, you didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Scarborough Fair is an old folk song, but the guitar arrangement Simon uses on it is certainly the one that Martin Carthy came up with. And Martin Carthy taught it to Paul Simon. Shout out whoever that was. This guy once tried to credit himself as a writer on fucking Silent Night. 
Can you imagine? Dude, why do you need everything? Why do you need everything to be about you? Why do you have to be the only one? What is the fucking deal here? I will say all the episodes we've done to this point, I would say Paul Simon's got to be in the top three biggest egomaniacs of anyone we've ever covered in this show, which is really, really saying something. If you think about all the bands we've covered, this dude may be the biggest egomaniac we've ever talked about ever on this show. There was at least one instance where he claimed that he tried to have his publishing company give someone royalties but then that person was never actually given those royalties. So I tried to donate like a hundred thousand dollars last year to charity, but you know, it just, I got lost. Uh, like my GPS was acting weird that day. Uh, yeah. Like I went to do it. It sucks, man. I tried. I really did try. I already had a, uh, an appointment to have this lady shit on my face. So yeah. Mrs. Robinson. I had to go do that. Was her name. And we got to wrap this shit up. We still have to talk about the bridge over troubled water. Like the a bridge over troubled water. It's their biggest album and one of the best-selling albums of all time. At the time, it was the biggest. For a while, this was the best-selling album of all time. It was. Truly. I never need to hear that song again. Yeah, I'm going to shut off Bill Withers singing Lean On Me and pretend that the Beatles didn't already release Let It Be for however long it takes to listen to Art Garfunkel sing a song Paul Simon wrote about a friendship that can overcome any turmoil. Only not theirs. These guys hate each other too much to have ever successfully reunited, even though it would make them both millions and millions of dollars. Why are we listening to them sing about friendship? Millions? Well, I mean, not at this point. No one gives a fuck now. I don't know, man. There'd be some weirdos out. There'd be a lot of weirdos There's out there. There's no way that Art Garfunkel can sing like he used to. No, and I, I actually, I, I think that's a thing. He can't. He can't hit a lot of the notes, but he would just do what everyone else does. And they'd have like 10 different backup <laughs> singers out there. Auto-tune it like the Disturbed guy. <laughs> That's what everyone does. They should just get the Disturbed guy to come do... Well, Paul! Paul, call the fucking Disturbed guy and have him do all of the Art Garfunkel We're parts. We're going to go on the road with Disturbed guy. He's classically trained. Art's going to sue you, so that's good for PR. You'll definitely get a shitload of publicity. You'll win, because we all know you have most of the money from this shit. I will say this, there's got to be an immense amount of suffering to be, okay, Simon and Garfunkel were popular, what, now, at this point, what, like 50 years ago or some shit? And there was articles I read that came out in the last two, three, four years still talking about Simon and Garfunkel, interviewing Paul Simon, asking him thoughts on fucking Art Garfunkel. Oh my God, man, let it fucking die. Let it rest. It's over. I can't imagine what it would be like to still 50 years later talk about that shit. That would drive me fucking crazy. Yeah, never do anything that gets popular. If you do something that gets popular, you have got to be so intentional about curating the audience. Anytime someone shows up who you don't want them to be in your audience, you've got to actively tell them to go fuck themselves so they know they're not who you made it for. The thing is, if Art Garfunkel was to go on tour right now doing his solo stuff, which I'm sure 10 people care about, every interview that he did, if he did interviews, would be asking about Simon and Garfunkel. Every single one. And if they weren't, what would the interview be? Five minutes long? 
if you work in the music business in any capacity, the music industry in any capacity, and someone is an asshole, you're eventually going to hear about it. And like, I've heard a few stories about Art Garfunkel being an asshole, but of fucking course he's an asshole. He could have been Jesus Christ sent to this planet to save humanity. And if he lived this life and had this experience and dealt with all the shit that he's dealt with, it would turn anyone into an asshole. 100%. Paul Simon started as an asshole, and we will get to that whenever we get around to doing a Paul Simon (laughs) solo artist episode of this show. I think it's pretty clear that Paul Simon could not handle how often Art Garfunkel was given credit for being a better singer. I think it drove Paul Simon insane that he wrote the songs. On the press side of it, people just wanted to talk about how no one would listen if Art Garfunkel wasn't helping him sing them, and that's when he had to blow it all up and prove that he could do it on his own or whatever. When they reunited the concert in New York City we were talking about earlier, this is the early 1980s. After that, they decided to go ahead and do a whole tour and record a reunion album because it went so well and everything. They get in the studio, record a bunch of shit, and Paul erases Art Garfunkel's vocals from the (laughs) album and puts it out as a solo album. Can you believe that? That That's some top-tier goblin shit, dude. If you go talk to Art Garfunkel and you want to talk about some Paul Simon shit, he's probably not there for that conversation. And I can't imagine that you would be either. You'd be like, stop fucking talking to me about that guy. Never, ever want to talk about that guy ever again. Fuck. I'm not going to lie. If Paul Simon was making like punk rock or heavy metal music, I'd be like, man, that's hard as fuck to go into the studio, record a whole album with somebody and then put it out and be like, they don't exist. Actually, That's fuck hard. you. <laughs> That's hard as fuck. That's some like crazy shit to do. This is like your quote unquote friend that you toured with and wrote music with. Well, performed music with for 40 fucking years. Also, the assumption is that he intended on making an album with Art Garfunkel and at a certain point got insecure or for whatever reason decided he didn't want to do that. But what if that was the plan the whole time? No shit. What if he did the whole fucking reunion tour knowing he's cashing these checks every night, knowing that they're going to go into a studio, knowing that he's going to have him record all this shit and then just cut him out of it. No shit. Because he can. Because he can. And then we'll see. Then we'll see who's talking about who. We'll see who takes the next movie role, you piece of shit. Hashtag, when did Paul know? When did Paul know? Dude, that is some crazy top-tier egomaniac shit. (laughs) He never let it it go, dude. He was like, you were in that fucking movie, Art. What's fucked up is, and again, we got to save this for the Paul Simon solo career because I think it's the origin story of of his... Of the goblin known as Paul Simon? Villainhood. No shit. He drew first blood in this relationship. Paul did? Yeah, he's the one who started this shit. He's the villain. He's the one who's the asshole. He's always been the asshole. Yes, he's the villain top to bottom, beginning to end. Art probably is not like the best dude, whatever. I don't know. He's probably an asshole now. Who would it be, man? Paul's just ruined his life. What if you were just in a band with a talented Mr. Ripley since grade school? Yeah, no shit. And just constantly fucking you over. You know, he just gaslighted the shit out of him the whole time, too, you know? Art, I don't understand why you're so mad. What, what is the... What I are, mean, dude, I mean, hey. I why, mean, do you, why do you always do this? Art, Art, why are you so mad? <laughs> Didn't you have to answer someone's phone call from Hollywood? I thought you were a movie star. Your agent was going to call you today, right? Yeah, I didn't realize you still cared about the band. So, yeah, I feel like I have been speed talking to keep this episode under an hour. You jammed through it. We successfully did it. And the only thing I have left to say 
is if Simon and Garfunkel is your grandma's favorite band, <laughs> her favorite band sucks. You're welcome for another Cuckoo Kachu episode of Your Favorite Band Sucks. If this was your first time listening to this podcast or any podcast, we hope you didn't enjoy it. But if we did something wrong and you had a good time, then it would only be right for you to visit the website shop.yfbspod.com to see if you may be interested in owning any of the merchandise we currently have on offer. Uh, One quick note, please understand that Mark and I are both aware that Paul Simon has been in movies. Everyone has seen Spinal Tap. You do not need to put on your superhero cape and swoop in like Captain Actually to try to correct anyone here. If any of the not super smart but want to yell at us anyway people ever looked into any of the things they think they know before yelling at us, they would discover tons of Paul Simon interviews that illustrate how deeply bothered he was by being left out of a movie that Art Garfunkel did. All right, that's it. I surprisingly had fun doing an episode about such a non-dynamic duo, so let's keep this trainer rolling and hit another duo. Honestly, this is one of my personal favorite musical duos of all time, so I am really excited to announce that when the podcast returns, we will be discussing Alice and Chains. <laughs> 